The scripture reading for today is found in 1 John 2, 7 through 14, which can be found on page 1021 in your seatback Bibles. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard, and at the same time it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven in his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is in the begin from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This morning we continue on in the New Testament letter of 1 John. If you remember the, the situation and the setting here, our author is John the Apostle, uh, part of Jesus' inner circle of 12 disciples. He's also the author of the Gospel according to John, one of the four biographies that we have in the Bible that tell us about Jesus' life and death, his teaching, his resurrection. So of the four Gospel accounts of Jesus' life, John is the latest, probably by a couple of decades. We think it was written uh, most likely in the early 80s AD. And it seems like the letter that we call 1 John, that we're studying uh, on our Sunday mornings together, was written at least in part to correct or to clarify some ways that John's gospel account had been misunderstood or misapplied. Uh, we don't have a date on this letter. Uh, but the evidence that we have leads us to believe that it was probably written in the early 90s AD, so about maybe 10 years, a decade after John's gospel was written. This would have been the very end of John's life. He would have been an old man at this point. And, and in terms of what motivated John to write this letter, it, as I mentioned, it does seem that there was some error that had crept into the church, particularly in the form of false teachers. So in chapter 2, verse 19, uh, we see that there had been a split in the church, that some church members had embraced false teaching and had gone out from the congregation. In chapter 2, verse 26, John talks about people who are trying to deceive you. In chapter 4, verse 1, he talks uh, directly about false prophets. And so throughout the letter, we see the Apostle John addressing these false teachers and the effect that they had on the church, the, the ways that they destabilized the, the faith and the confidence of the people there, particularly in what they'd been taught by the apostle. And so John, in this letter, is concerned to give his readers, to give the sort of faithful faction that hadn't gone off after these false teachers. He wants to give them some criteria for evaluating them, themselves, some criteria for even understanding and evaluating other teachers. So he keeps saying throughout this letter, if anyone claims to know God, or if anyone claims 
to love God. Or if anyone claims that they walk in the light, and then he, then he goes on to give believers tests that they can use to evaluate that claim. It's a way of exposing false teachers and, and refuting uh, what they claim. So last week at the beginning of chapter 2, we saw the test of obedience. John says that anyone who claims to know the Lord but doesn't have any interest in keeping his commands, John says he's a liar and the truth isn't in him. We see that in chapter 2, verse 4. But on the other hand, John says, if someone does keep the Lord's commands, right, not perfectly, John makes it clear that that won't be the case until we get to heaven, but if the trajectory of his or her life is towards a delight in doing what the Lord Jesus has said, then we can have confidence that such a person actually does know him. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 3. Right? These tests are useful to us. They're a way of evaluating our teachers and the voices that we're listening to. They're also a way for us to evaluate our own lives. They encourage us to look at our own claim to know God and to walk in his light and to hold that claim up to the tests that John's giving us. And so in this morning's passage that Mike just read for us, we're going to see yet another test, the test of love for our brothers and sisters. And so as we approach these verses, I want to start by actually starting at the end of the passage, looking there in verses 12 to 14 to see what John says about why it is that he's writing to the congregation. And then we'll move on to look at the importance of love for our brothers and sisters that John talks about in verses 7 to 11. So we'll start by looking at verses 12 to 14, and we'll finish, Lord willing, by looking at verses 7 to 11. So let's start there at the end in verses 12 to 14. Let me read that for you again. John writes, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, I don't know about you, but this seems a little bit random to me. John is cruising along. He's saying lots of things that we expect apostles to say, right? Love is good. Obedience is good. And then suddenly he just sort of stops in the middle and begins to address specific groups of people in the church. It comes out of nowhere. But perhaps we can figure out what it is that he's doing here. Let's begin by looking at what he actually says here in verses 12 to 14, and then maybe we can figure out how it fits into the larger message of 1 John. You might notice that there's some structure, there's some repetition in what John says here. So he addresses three groups of people twice. Uh, the first time he addresses them, he says, I am writing to you. So in verse 12, I am writing to you. Verse 13, I am writing to you. Verse 13, I am writing to you. The second time he addresses these three groups of people, the tense of his verb changes. He says, now, I write to you. I write to you. I write to you. Uh, we could translate the word that he uses there, I have written to you. Right? He's, he's changed the, the tense of the verb a little bit. I actually don't think there's a ton of significance there, except for it just gets really repetitious to keep saying the same thing over and over again. If you do any writing, you probably have had this happen to you, where you're like, 
okay, I just need a different word, right? I can't keep saying that same thing over and over again. I think that's what John's doing here. I don't think we should read too much into the verb tense change. I think he's just trying to sort of rhetorically kind of heighten the impact of what he's saying and keep from being repetitious. There's three different groups of people being addressed. In verse 12, he addresses little children. Then again in verse 13, he says that he's writing to the children. The second group is there in verse 13 at the beginning. He speaks to fathers. Again, in verse 14, he addresses them again, fathers. And then the, the third group is introduced in the middle of verse 13. He says, I'm writing to you young men. And then he comes back at the end of verse 14 to talk to young men again. So you have these three groups of people, uh, little children or children, people that John's addressing as fathers, and then people that John is addressing as young men. So how do we understand those three groups? Uh, we can't be certain and commentators divide on this issue, but I think the majority interpretation here is that John is speaking probably not to groups of like people with diff literally different ages in the church, but rather he's speaking uh, to people with different degrees of spiritual maturity. So he's saying something to those who are relatively speaking, spiritually speaking, little children, just perhaps beginning their walk with the Lord Jesus. And he's addressing those who are in their spiritual adolescence. These are the, the young men. And he's addressing those who have achieved a kind of spiritual seniority, uh, calling them fathers. Now, to be clear, I don't think we should think specifically in terms of gender here, as if John only intends to address the males in the congregation. It is a fairly common practice in ancient writings to assume the presence or the attention of women when addressing something to the men in a group. So that's not how we communicate today, uh, but we have to read this in light of the culture to which it was written. Whether John is addressing people in different stages of life or different stages of spiritual maturity ultimately doesn't matter too much because what's important is what he says to them and how he describes them. There in verse 12, to the little children, he says that he's writing to them because, quote, your sins are forgiven for his sake. Remember last week we saw that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That by his sacrificial death, he paid the price for our sins. He bore our penalty. He bore our punishment so that we could be forgiven. So that we could be pleasing to God in the way that he is. And so John here says, for the sake of his name. For the sake of who Jesus is and, and what he did for us on the cross, he says, we have been forgiven. The tense of the verb that John uses there indicates that, that the sins that he's thinking about, they were forgiven and they still remain forgiven. We see John addresses the little children again a bit later in verse 13, saying that they know the Father. He says, I'm writing to you, I write to you children because you know the Father. Literally, the word there is that you've come to know the Father. Right? It seems like John's describing the first steps, the very first joyous experiences of the Christian life. Right? Maybe you can remember the, for the first time that feeling of, of relief, that sense of, of freedom that came when you realized that in Christ, the, the unbearable burden of your sin had been removed from you. Perhaps you can recall the joy when you realized for the first time that the God you had never really known in his great love had adopted you into his family, that he is your father, and that he's made you his beloved child. 
John addresses the young men there in the middle of verse 13. He says that they've overcome the evil one. There at the end of verse 14, he addresses them again. He says that, again, you've overcome the evil one, this time adding that they are strong. He says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. You see, being a Christian isn't just about receiving God's forgiveness. It's never less than that, but it's not just that. There is also an enemy to be fought. There is a war to be waged. Having received God's salvation in Christ with its forgiveness, with its new relationship to the Father, these young men in the faith are strong. John says the word of God abides in them. They know it. It shapes their attitudes. It, it forms their thoughts and their actions. Right In terms that we thought about in last week's passage, they obey his commands. In, particularly in the context of this situation, they haven't followed after the false teachers. They've not been swayed by those diabolical lies. And so John rejoices because they've overcome the evil one. The, the devil took his kill shot. He sent those false teachers in to, if possible, shipwreck your faith, but you were strong in the word of God. It abides in you, and you overcame the evil one. There at the beginning of verse 13, he addresses the fathers. So again, these might be the spiritually mature in the church. Some suggest this is a term sort of indicating leaders in the church. But he says there that they know him who is from the beginning, in the verse, beginning of verse 13. He repeats that same idea at the beginning of verse 14. Perhaps these are people for whom the early days of their Christian life when the joy of forgiveness was new and strange, perhaps that, that experience was far off in the past. Maybe the, the struggles of young men and the, the temptation to go after the new latest teaching was, was well behind these fathers. But what they're left with now is a mature and deep knowledge a personal and intimate relationship with him, John says, who was or who is from the beginning. Now, if you remember back to the very opening of this letter, John speaks about the word of life as being from the beginning. It's clear in that context that the, the word of life is Jesus himself, the eternal son of God who has always existed and who took on flesh in order to save us. And so it seems here that John's pointing out that these mature saints are characterized by a knowledge of him. Perhaps a knowledge that even, John's saying, extends all the way back into the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. But when you put it all together, what's clear is that John is writing to this group of people and he is confident in them. Whether they are young or old in the faith, new believers or the most seasoned disciples, he is confident of their standing with the Lord. He, he knows that they know him, that they are strong in his word, that they've received forgiveness for their sins. Okay, why is that important? I think it's important because in a couple of weeks, we're going to see, Lord willing, that John is going to strongly warn the church against loving the things of the world. And we have to remember that that command, and really all the commands in 1 John, they stand on this foundation. They come in the context of John's confidence that his readers have come to know Jesus, that they've overcome the evil one, that they've They've triumphed through his victory over sin and death. They're participating in his life and that they know the forgiveness of their sins. 
think it's also important because John, you may have noticed already, he speaks a lot in conditionals, right? In chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We saw last week, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. We'll see, Lord willing, in a few more weeks in chapter 2, verse 24. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Right? The, the letter of 1 John is full of these kinds of conditionals. If this is the case, then this is the case. The danger is that we hear those ifs and we conclude that our salvation and all of its benefits maybe hangs in the balance. That they somehow depend on our ability to, to check off a list, to, to fulfill all of the ifs that John's giving us here. Now, of course, what John is saying is true, but, it, but he's not saying it in order to destabilize your confidence in God's salvation. John's words here in chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, they're meant to stir up your confidence. If you are in Christ, then you have great reason to be joyful and to be sure as you stand before God. You, no less than John's first readers, have been forgiven. And God's word abides in you. And you are strong and you know him and you've overcome the evil one who seeks to deceive you and to keep you from faith in Christ. So brothers and sisters, that's our identity. That is what's most true about you. So whatever warnings or corrections John might have for us, they come to people who belong to Jesus. Right? It's like a coach who tells his team, look, if we execute this game plan, there is no way that we lose. Right? And then he reminds them, you have everything you need in order to execute this game plan. You, you've been prepared, you've been equipped, you've been trained, you've practiced, you know how to do it, you're going to do it, and you are going to win. In the same way, John's pointing out that the love and the faithfulness, the, the walking in the light, knowing that his readers are rooted in Christ, that they have everything they need, that they are going to win. And so he can say here that he's writing to them, not because he's afraid that they're not saved, but because he's confident that they are. And so it's in that light that we want to consider our second sort of half of the, the text this morning, uh, where we see the importance of our love for our brothers and sisters. Uh, we see that in chapter, or in chapter 2, verses 7 to 11. Let me read that for us again. It says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Well, if you're getting sort of used to John's writing style here, you may notice that he gets to his point in a, a pretty roundabout fashion. There at the beginning of verse 7, he tells them 
that he has a new commandment for them. Oh, I'm sorry, he has a, a commandment for them, but it's not a new one. So verse 7, he says, I have a commandment. It's not new. He says, it's actually quite old. In fact, he says, you've had it from the beginning. So John says, I have a commandment for you. It's not new. It's actually old. You've had it from the beginning there in verse 7. Now, when he says you've had it from the beginning, it doesn't seem like he's using that phrase in the same way as when he talks about Jesus. You know, when he talks about Jesus being from the, from the beginning, he means like from all eternity past, right? That wouldn't make sense in this context since John's readers haven't been around that long. Instead, it seems like what he's referring to is from the beginning of their walk with Christ, Right, this command that he has for them, it's not a new command, it's an old command. It's something they've known since day one. It's, it's something that, that's wrapped up in the message that was proclaimed to them at the very beginning. So there at the end of verse 7, he says, The old command, the old commandment, is the word that you've heard. But we still don't know exactly what the command is there in verse 7. But instead of telling us what it is, there in verse 8, John tells us that this old command that's not a new command, it actually is a new command. There in verse 8, he says, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. To which we say, did the John who wrote verse 7 meet the John who wrote verse 8? He goes on to clarify there. He says this new command, he says, is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And again, that doesn't actually clarify anything. In verses 9 to 10, we do finally get some sense of what John's talking about here. In verse 9, we get one of his if anyone says statements. So again, this is one of John's favorite ways to poke at the false teachers Right? They, they said all kinds of stuff. They claimed to have all kinds of spiritual insight and knowledge and experience. And John keeps saying their life doesn't back it up. So here in verse 9, he says, whoever says that he's in the light. Right? So remember, John's told us that God is light in 1 John 1, 5. Right? In him, there's no darkness at all. Right? The claim here is that I'm walking in God's ways. I'm in the light. John says, if anyone makes that claim there in verse 9, but he hates his brother, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, verse 9, is still in the darkness. Right? You can imagine that if this church had recently experienced a schism, right? if there was a contentious split in the church, Right, a lot of debate over, over doctrine and practice. You can imagine that there may well have been a lot of hate spewed by these false teachers on their way out. And John says, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Right, the image gets intensified there in verse 11. John says, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Right? Whoever hates his brother, John says, is in the darkness. It means you don't know God. Right? Remember, in him there is no darkness at all. God is light. John goes on in verse 11. Not only are you in the darkness, he says you walk in the darkness. Right? Whoever hates his brother, their way of life has nothing to do with God. Right? He also right, doesn't know where... Um, I'm sorry. These false teachers here have, have posed as spiritual guides. John says they don't even know where they're going. Right? Again, in verse 11. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness 
And to make matters worse, they don't know where they're going. Right? This is shots fired situation. Here, these false teachers, they claim to be guides. John says they don't even know where they're going. At the end of verse 11, John says the darkness has blinded their eyes. Right? Their spiritual ignorance is total. Right? How do you know? John says because they hate their brother. Anybody who hates their brother is in that kind of darkness. So we see that this old new command that John wants to give to the church, it has something to do with not hating your brother. And there in verse 10, John tells us more. That the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, he's blind, he's stumbling around. But there in verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. You see, it's just the opposite. The one who loves is not in darkness, but John says he abides in the light. The one who loves walks in the ways of God, the God who is light. Right? There is nothing, John says, to cause that person to stumble spiritually. So we have our command. This old, new command is the command to love our brothers. And we would make explicit our sisters in the church. So let's ask some questions of what John says here. Why is this command both old and new? Well, it's new in the sense that Jesus called it a new commandment. So we read in John's gospel account, in John chapter 13. On the eve of his death, the Lord Jesus said this to his disciples. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Okay, we'll come back to that in a minute and talk about what's new about what Jesus is saying there. Right, so Jesus calls it a new commandment. Right, but there's also a sense in which this was an old commandment for John's readers. Again, he describes there in verse 7 an old command that they've heard from the beginning. Right there at the end of verse 7, he says it's the word that they've heard. It is the message that's been proclaimed to them. Right, this isn't news to them. They've already heard this. Right, this message of love for one another, it has deep roots all the way back into the Old Testament where God's people are commanded to love one another in Leviticus 19. Right, there's a way in which this command to love is wrapped up in the message of the gospel itself. Right, it's nothing new. We'll think about that again more than a minute. So it's, an, it's a new command because Jesus calls it a new command. It's an old command because it's, it's been around for a really long time. They've heard it from the beginning. Okay, so what does John mean when he says there in verse 8 that this command is true in him and, he says, in you? It's a strange statement. He says there, at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. So when John talks about the command to love our brothers and sisters, he says that this command is true in him. That is to say the truth of this command is seen, or we might say the command is perfectly and truthfully revealed in Jesus. So how does Jesus sort of truly reveal this command to love one another? Well, we see in Jesus' teaching that the Old Testament command to love your brother, it gets deepened, it gets expanded. Right? Jesus calls it one of the two greatest commands. Right? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, etc. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he defines those two commands as basically all of obedience. 
to the law and the prophets. Right? Jesus elevates love for your neighbor uh, up into sort of fulfilling all of the law. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus expands the definition of our neighbor to include anyone who needs our love, anyone who needs our care and attention, even if that person is our enemy. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus holds up God's kindness towards his enemies as the sort of height of his perfection. And he calls us as God's children to love our enemies the way our Father loves his enemies. So in all of his teaching, Jesus made this commandment true by challenging us with an expanded and deepened definition of love. So John says there in verse 8, this new commandment I'm writing to you is true in him. But even more than that, it's in Jesus' life, not just in his teaching, but also in his life that we see this commandment taken to a deeper level. And we see the call to love one another given a whole new meaning. Think about how Jesus loved people during his earthly ministry. Over and over again, Jesus would see crowds of needy people around him. And we're told that he was moved with compassion. When the, the sick and the unclean approached him and, and broke social and religious protocol by touching him, he didn't recoil. He moved towards them and healed them. When tax collectors and prostitutes, the very worst sinners, came to him, he called them to follow after him and receive his salvation. He sat down and ate dinner with people that no respectable Jew would ever think to eat with. But even more than in his teaching, even more than in the way he treated other people with kindness, we see that this new command to love our brothers is already true in Christ. We see that most clearly at the cross. All of the gospel accounts make it clear that Jesus lived with the steadfast intention of offering up his life as a sacrifice, as a substitute for his people. Make no mistake, Jesus was not a victim. He was not martyred by forces beyond his control. When the time arrived, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem to die for his people. After his arrest, he made it very clear to Pontius Pilate that he had access to plenty of resources, that he could put an end to this little charade and this whole affair at any moment. But he chose, in love, to be beaten, humiliated, nailed to a cross, left to suffer the worst kind of death imaginable, hanging there as if he were a criminal and not the most beautiful person in the universe. Even more than the physical and emotional suffering, at the cross, Jesus endured the wrath of God against all of our sins. He took on himself. He underwent the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin. In love, he willingly experienced the hell that was yours and mine. But he didn't stay dead. He wasn't defeated at the cross, but in fact, it was the scene of his great victory. Jesus rose from the dead, and now he invites sinners like you and me, people whose lives, if we're honest, are marked not by love, but by selfishness and anger and rebellion against God. He invites us to come and to receive his love, to, to receive forgiveness for all of our sins, to, to inherit the sure promise of eternal life with him. 
Can you see how John says this command to love other people? It's already true in him. What better, what deeper example of love could there possibly be? Right, Jesus himself makes this perfectly clear again in his instruction to his disciples on the night before his death in John's gospel. He says in John 15 verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John makes it clear a bit later on in this letter that this is exactly the kind of love he's thinking about. In 1 John 3.16, it says, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John makes it clear, this command to love one another, what does it look like? It looks like Jesus dying on the cross. So this command, Jesus says, is true in him. And not only is it true in him, but there in verse 8, John says that it's true in you as well. Brothers and sisters, this is important. We might be tempted to take it for granted because it's familiar to us. But what John is saying here and what the rest of the New Testament confirms is that the love that Jesus showed to us at the cross, if you've really experienced it, if, if that love has made its way into your soul, if the fresh breeze of God's forgiveness and mercy in Christ has blown through your life, it will change you into his image. You will, as John says earlier in this letter, walk in the way that he walked. God's love doesn't leave us where we are. It doesn't leave us selfish, envious, bitter, hateful people. No, it makes us look more and more like Jesus. And that means in the particular context of this passage that we won't hate our brothers and sisters in the church. There in verses 9 and 11. But, as he says there in verse 10, we will love them. Now maybe you're thinking, didn't I just hear this sermon a couple of weeks ago? Right, weren't we in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and basically Seth said the same thing? Well, you did hear that, and he did say that. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know that this idea of loving one another actually gets quite a bit of airtime. Right, it must be very important. But it does strike me that Paul's instructions to the Thessalonians and, and John's words here, while they're driving at the same idea that Christians ought to love one another, they do have slightly different emphases. There, in 1 Thessalonians, the apostle is addressing love in the context of a, a temptation to laziness and indifference. Right? The threat to that church was a, a temptation to mooch off of others rather than working hard in order to provide. The threat to love in that church was, was meddlesomeness, sort of an unwillingness to, to mind your own business and get about the work God had given you to do. And that's good. That's helpful. I found that sermon uh, convicting and challenging and helpful. But I think John's dealing with something a bit darker here in the churches that he's writing to. Right? They've been through a tremendous time of schism and conflict. And so the temptation for these Christians is not to be lazy or to take advantage of one another, no, the temptation there in verse 9 and verse 11, it's to hate one another, to, to despise them in your soul. 
to view them with antipathy, to treat them as if they were your enemy. So as we think about how this applies to our life as, as individuals and as a church family, let's start with the easy stuff, and then we'll work our way to the hard stuff. Right, the easy stuff is to see how this temptation to hate other Christians is played out in the lives of other people, in other churches or other ministries. Right, I won't belabor the point, but it's hardly shocking news to point out that our, our society has grown comfortable with a kind of public discourse that is angry and coarse, prone to demonize those with whom we disagree. We've grown comfortable uh, painting our opponents in the worst possible light, viewing their actions in the least charitable way, feeling justified in our hatred for them. Right, And that's outside the church, but that tone, that tenor, seems to have infected the Christian community in America. And so we've grown used to people taking stages at conferences or, or, or getting up and preaching sermons or, or going online and becoming viral for just, just crushing other Christians for their political views, for their social views. If someone has a different conviction or opinion on a certain matter, we've taken that now as grounds just to destroy that person in public. And so it looks a lot more to the world like we hate one another than that we love one another. It seems like we're teaching each other to antagonize our brothers and sisters and to see them as our enemies. I think that's the easy stuff. I think you can see it out there in the world if you're looking for it. The difficult thing, I think, is to recognize how this temptation to hatred manifests itself in our hearts, in our church, in our ministry. My guess is that your heart is not posting its most twisted thoughts on Twitter. Uh, the secret antipathies that lurk in your soul don't want to come out into the light where other people can see them. Uh, my guess is what this looks like in our midst is more like a low-level revulsion, like a, a brief burst of disgust when you see someone that you just can't stand. Maybe it's a little more mild. Maybe it's just an impulse to avoid someone. You just don't care for that person. So we're going to get up. We're going to spread out. Some folks will go for coffee. Some people will stand here. Everyone's going to mill around. You see that person and you think, I, I want nothing to do with them. Maybe it's a, a quickness to mock them behind their back or even just in your heart. Or a secret delight when you hear bad news that bad things have happened to them. Maybe it's even just passing judgment on someone because they don't serve the way that you serve. They don't have the life that looks like yours. They don't work as hard as you do. Christian, can you see how all of that, whatever that looks like, can you see how that's life lived in the darkness? There in verse 8, John tells us the true light is already shining. The love of Jesus is like a floodlight turned on in a dark room. Right? The darkness of our hate-filled world is being pushed back all the way into the darkness of our hearts. As John says there in verse 8, the darkness is passing away. It is being relegated to the sidelines. It is becoming untrue in the church. And so the old commandment that John speaks of here, this old-slash-new command to love one another, John's saying this is an invitation to get on board with what the God of the universe is doing through his Son. 
This is an invitation to bring your life and your love into line with the life and love of the Lord Jesus. Love shown to his people. Love shown to Sterling Park Baptist Church. Love shown to the brother and sister that you don't like very much. Love shown only to people who don't deserve it. This letter is going to challenge us over and over again to examine our relationships and our attitudes towards our brothers and sisters in the congregation. And so what we need to particularly take away from this passage is how central love for one another is to the message of the gospel. To be clear, we don't earn, we don't merit, we don't even secure our salvation by loving one another well. But if the gospel message of Jesus' death for us is most basically a message about his love for his people, then there's no way that God's love can be in you if you don't also, if you don't share that love. God's love flowing through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit into God's people, it is so central to the gospel that to lack love for your brother or sister John seems to be saying is to lack the gospel itself. In this way, the command to love is the word that you heard, as John puts it there in verse 8. It's the word that you heard when you came to Christ. It is the message of God's love. It's the command, John says, you've always known from the very beginning. It's nothing new. It's wrapped up in the thing itself. If you say you're in the light, well, it's not too hard to see if you're telling the truth. If you hate your brother or your sister, John says you're walking in the darkness. But if you love your brother and your sister, if you want the best for them, if the posture of your heart is to be patient and merciful, hopeful, believing the best about them, if you find yourself however imperfectly, wanting to overcome obstacles that keep you from loving that person well. Right? If, as you look at your heart, you despair over ways that hatred and criticism and accusations seem to just spring up unbidden from within you, right? if you've learned to hate those sort of unwanted flare-ups of darkness, then John says you're living in the light. Brothers and sisters, there's so much good news here. It's good news that the true God who really is, is like this. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is characterized by love. Just stop and think for a second. What if he weren't like that? What if he were full of hate and envy? What if he was capricious? What if he was irritable? Right? Think how terrible the world would be. Think how awful the darkness would be for all eternity. But as John's going to tell us a bit later on in his letter, God is love. He is light. He is beautiful. He is kind. And so it's good news that this beautiful, this loving God commands his people to love the way that he does. Think about it. What is it that God wants from you? Does he want you to, to beat yourself up, to be full of self-loathing? Right, to show him that you're serious about feeling bad about the things that you've done and the ways you've messed up? No? Maybe he wants extreme asceticism. 
right? Renounce everything to show him that you are really serious about him, that you care more for him than you do for the things of the world. That's, that's not the new commandment. Is what God wants harder work, more sacrifice, greater self-discipline, greater service? Maybe there's a place for those things. But brothers and sisters, here in our passage, what we see is that the life of Jesus working in you and through you, the light shining in the darkness, what it's going to look like is love. Not some kind of vague, abstract feeling of goodwill, but genuine love. Care for, joy in the people that are sitting next to you right now. Again, how wonderful, what good news that this is what God wants from you. This is what pleases him. He's not out to inflict pain and suffering on you for his sport. He is pleased with you when you love. And it's not something we even have to conjure up. Right, if the commandment were, look, if you want to be in the light, you better work pretty hard. You better get loving. You're not very good at loving. Love more. What are we going to do with that? No, there's good news that it's not even a love that we have to manufacture. It's not a a resource that we have to to drum up within ourselves. It's his love. It's his spirit. It's walking in the way that Jesus walked. God wants us to look more and more like his son. And so the more we walk with Christ, the more we love him, the more we understand him, the more we look at him, the more we will love like he loved. Brothers and sisters, what a gift to us. What a joy to be called into a church, into a family, into a body of people who are being transformed by the love of Jesus. What a joy to be, to be paired up, to be matched up, to be bound to people who are commanded by God to love me. And I'm commanded by God to love them. What a gift to know that when we come to the table together, or when we're in small groups together, or or when we're in members' meetings together, or when we're chatting over coffee after the service, when we are sick and sorrowful, or when we are rejoicing. What a gift to know that you are loved by your brothers and sisters in the church, not because you're always lovely, not because you're particularly lovable, but because the love of Jesus is flowing through them to you. Who wouldn't want to be part of a community like that? Who doesn't want to be loved like that? Who doesn't want to be transformed into someone who loves like that? Who doesn't want their children to see the love of Christ in the context of that kind of church? Oh, brothers and sisters, how kind of God to love us like this and to call us to love one another. Let's celebrate this true light that's already shining by coming to the Lord's table together. Together celebrating his love for us and our love for one another in Christ. First, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we delight in your love that you are not cruel, you are not capricious, but you are a God of love, a God of beauty, a God of light, We praise you for the love you've shown to us in the Lord Jesus, in his his teaching, and in his love for the people around him, and ultimately in his sacrificial death for our sins. Holy Spirit, would you 
increasingly transform us into a community of people captivated by that love, characterized by that love, committed to showing that love to one another into the watching world. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.